I'm Amanda Carpenter, and this is the Sustainable Law Podcast. If you work in the legal sector and you have an interest in the climate, then this podcast is for you. We are not suggesting we have all the answers, but we explore the ideas that don't always make the final text, that sit inside the square brackets. A fudge hijacked by fossil fuels or a meaningful platform for change? What did come out of COP28 in Dubai? We asked two young lawyers just what it was like and what they hope will happen now. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Sustainable Law Podcast. I'm joined by Charlie Beavis, a trainee solicitor with Norton Rose Fulbright. Charlie was at COP for the Climate Youth Negotiator Programme, a global initiative that trains and funds young people to attend climate summits. He was there supporting the 120 youth negotiators who were at COP. And Sarah Hill-Smith, who's an associate at Clyde Co. in the Climate Risk and Resilience Team. Sarah was at COP28 as a volunteer for Legal Response International, which provides free legal advice to climate-vulnerable countries. Hello both and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us on. Before we get into the details um, of what you both experienced and, and how it felt, I wonder, Sarah, could you, for the benefit of listeners, just give us a very brief outline as to what COP is and what it's for? Absolutely. Um, I always think that's a very useful framing for a conversation about COP, incidentally. So COP stands for the Conference of Parties, and those are the parties or the states or organisations such as the EU who signed up to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change all the way back in 1992. And every year, those parties or signatories to that convention, it's called interchangeably the convention or the UNFCCC, meet in November, December time, and they basically discuss how to implement the goals of the United Nations Framework's Convention on Climate Change. So notable conference of parties in the past have been in Kyoto, and then most notably in Paris Agreement back in 2015, which gave the Paris Agreement, which we all are hopefully familiar with today. And the main objective of the Paris Agreement is to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C or well below 2 degrees. And that is the ultimate goal. So that's what we're trying to achieve. What was really important about uh, COP28 was that it was the first time that the global stocktake mechanism came into force, which was basically a process by which parties got together and took stock of the progress made to date and importantly set a roadmap for future action towards achieving the overall temperature goals. So that was really about the countries sort of fessing up almost about the commitments that they'd made and how far they got against those commitments. Because I think coming out of Paris and subsequent COPs, there were lots of very, very ambitious commitments. But as a world, we're failing to necessarily deliver on some of those commitments, aren't we? A lot of what comes out of COP are big grand announcements and commitments and pledges. And there's always a, okay, well, what next? There's always a question mark around implementation. And the global stocktake is, is arguably the first time that that implementation is being tested and tested on a very transparent uh, and global stage. Brilliant. Thank you for giving us that, because that's really, really helpful framing for our conversation. And what's particularly interesting about both of your experiences is that you weren't actually there as the formal negotiators, though I know, Charlie, you were running that youth negotiation support programme. You were there for voluntary organisations and voluntary youth organisations. So how did that feel? Charlie, can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing and also the context of how you got there? Because I think you're not fair to call you a veteran, but you're certainly an experienced cop goer. Yes, that's right. So I've been to a couple cops before. Each time it's been focusing on youth advocacy and trying to assert the youth voice. So how I attended COP26 and COP27 was with an organization called Climate Talk, 
which reports on climate negotiations and generally about the climate crisis to educate young people and to bring them into the movement. Because especially with COP, the negotiations can be really technical, can be really complex. And our goal was to go to those conferences and try and break that down and inform young people around the world about really what was going on there and why it was important. And then I suppose what I've tried to do going into COP28 is really elevate the impact that I'm trying to have in that space by moving from, I suppose, not only relaying information and helping people understand it, but really trying to bring young people actually into the negotiations themselves. So I was there with a program called the Climate Youth Negotiator Program, as you said, which is an exceptional program, only in its second year now. And the mission of the Climate Youth Negotiator Program is intergenerational justice. It's it's founded on this idea that young people and future generations are the ones that will deal with the most severe consequences of the climate crisis. And therefore, they need to be in the room really participating in those negotiations. So what we do as a program is we run a six-month training with the idea being that anyone can come into that training any young person and after six months they are able to fully participate in UNFCCC negotiations so not just negotiations or not just UN negotiations but really the technicalities of being in the UNFCCC space and this was birthed from one of the co-founders who was originally a youth negotiator for Switzerland and she felt that she was kind of dropped into a cop um, a few years ago now and wasn't able to as a young person felt isolated and wasn't able to fully have a meaningful impact so now we're coming back as you say we had 120 of our negotiators at cop so it's a really big pool of of young people far larger than most national delegations really and what we're trying to do is as i say bring young people into the negotiating rooms in a way that they can really assert the youth voice advocate for other young people and and have a meaningful impact that's an incredibly powerful tool as part of that conversation isn't it do you feel that do you feel that those youth voices were actually being listened to in Dubai because, I mean, I just think back to the COP that I went to, which was Glasgow, COP26, way back, where there was a big youth presence, but it wasn't really in the room. As you say, it was actually in the fringes. It was out on the streets or it was in the the non-formal zone, the kind of, you know, in the blue zone. It was actually in the green zone. Or when it was in the blue zone, it was really tokenistic. So do you think because you've skilled those young people up, they are able to both make those points, but more importantly, be listened to and taken seriously by the other negotiators? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And that's something that we're asking ourselves a lot as well. I think probably the extent to which young people are taken seriously is a long process. It's, it's, you know, one that we're constantly grappling with. And I think we've seen over the last few years, going back even, uh, we saw the creation of Youngo, which is the UN youth constituency, which has a young person into the global north and global south focal points. And then in the past couple of COPs, we've seen the youth climate champions coming in as well. So that was an idea that originally came through at COP27 when we had the first youth climate champion. And actually this year, that role was formalized in the final text that came out of COP28. So we are seeing young people brought formally into the UNFCCC process, into the COP process, and that's an institutionalized role for that. But I think what you're saying is completely true as well. I think it can be easy to see the youth interest in the climate crisis, see you know exceptional youth leaders and think that young people are therefore definitely part of this process. They're definitely able to have an impact. And that's not always the case. If anything, you often get sort of photo ops happening at COP where everyone wants to see Greta Thunberg outside COP26 or COP27 or whichever conference. And there's a lot of youth washing that goes on. And that's really what we're, what we're trying to tackle. But I will say, even with our program, 
where we have trained young people to be able to participate in these negotiations. And we have these memorandums of understanding with our partner governments saying that these young people will have a mandate in negotiations. They will be able to partake. Even then, we still see it being in the case that it can be difficult for young people to to fully participate. Partly, I suppose, that might be confidence and, and it might be the fact that there's not many other young people in the room. And also, it will be the case that within the national delegation, they can often be very hierarchical. Often, the other negotiators might be older. You know, frequently, they might all be men as well, which is difficult for young female negotiators coming in. I think we've made a really meaningful step in terms of what the program has achieved, taking these 120 young people or having them there at COP. But as I say, it's a process, it's ongoing, and we're learning from what we've done as well. And, and next year at COP29, we'll hopefully have more youth negotiators there. I would have thought a bit more about how we can make sure that we can navigate some of the obstacles that are, that are still in our path. But I think we're seeing really meaningful progress for sure. Yeah, it's bound to be a journey, isn't it? And Sarah, I guess I'm I'm struck by the parallel, perhaps, between the experience that Charlie's just described of young people and the experience that perhaps some of the most vulnerable countries who are right on the forefront of climate change, the small island states and many of the global south countries. It's a sort of parallel experience in a way, isn't it? For them, it's so vital that the, the outcomes of COP are a success and that we carry through our commitments. But so often their voices are marginalised as well. And the work you were doing is particularly to support those sorts of nations, wasn't it? Exactly. So you gave a, um, a very nice introduction at the beginning, but I will just give a, a little bit more detail on what Legal Response International or LRI does. So LRI volunteers like me, um, mostly lawyers, we go to the conference and we float and we network and we reach out to vulnerable states and their representatives um, and we inquire and we offer free legal advice to them and support as well. So that can come in many forms and obviously won't be able to divulge any of the specific queries that we had, but they can be procedural, technical, quite complex research projects as well. And the idea is that we field the query, we work with uh, networks of off-site volunteers who can do some of the research. They then send it back to us and then we turn it around quite quickly. So within the day or two, and that quick turnaround is most important when the queries relate to uh, live negotiations. So often delegates from poor and climate vulnerable nations will come to us with a query about something that's being negotiated and they want advice on how to better represent their interest in the next day's negotiations. So that's really important that that's a quick turnaround on that advice. Generally, in terms of the kinds of countries we work with, um, we work, as you've mentioned, with island states. And I think at this point, it's worth just taking a step back to explain something I was about to jump into. So at COPS, countries who are similar or like-minded, they form negotiating blocks. And it's a way of, on the one hand, shortening negotiations. But then on the other, it's a, it's a way of strengthening their negotiating position by presenting a solid or united front on a certain issue. So we generally work with several of these groups. So there's the Alliance of Small Island States, there's the Least Developed Countries group, there's the African group, and then the largest group of all is G77 plus China. So we work with those negotiating blocks. And it's interesting that you drew the parallel there, Amanda, between the position of the most vulnerable states and nations and youth, because I think the common thread between those groups are you know, these are the people and the groups that have the most at stake. They are the people who are going to shoulder the burden of climate change disproportionately for different reasons, of course. 
And like Charlie said, there's a lot of media buzz and hype around those groups at the conference. But actually, I don't think that that always translates into them having that much influence on the negotiations themselves. So for example, the global stock take, which was arguably one of the most divisive issues at this COP, when it was agreed, and when the whole COP text was agreed, AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, wasn't even in the room. The gavel came down without them even being there. And ex post facto, a representative of AOSIS said that they weren't going to veto the text anyway. So in the end, it doesn't matter. But procedurally, they weren't there. And I don't know what kind of message that sends to the world that they weren't in the room. It really delegitimizes and undermines the transparency and fairness of the process. I mean, that's extraordinary. I suppose, sadly, I'm not kind of surprised, but I do think that's extraordinary. Do you feel that 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 slightly high-handed approach actually, you know, if you like, it kind of exemplifies the fact that COPs are themselves slightly flawed as a process for us trying to tackle the existential crisis that is climate change and that maybe we need to rethink it? I mean, a lot of people said as a result of this COP, which I think was the biggest ever, I think I said 90,000 people, but, you know, many, many of those were nothing to do with those negotiation teams or the youth teams you've talked about, Charlie, or or the sort of support work that you've been doing, Sarah. They were it was the business jamboree, the circus that surrounded COP. Do you feel that, you know, we've come to the end of the road for COP as it is now and we should be rethinking how we do this, how we how we actually make progress globally around some of these targets and we need a different system? I think it's really important when you're considering that that you distinguish between the different elements of modern day COP. Because COP itself, as I described at the beginning, is a diplomatic process. It's an example of a multilateral diplomacy that's replicated in uh, lots of different fora around the world. So party representatives get together in a large room where everyone has a microphone. There are one or two chairs of the negotiation. And one by one, parties make representations of their country's national interests. At COP, they're negotiating a draft text, and it's a very long process. This model is replicated in in 50 rooms at the same time. So that is COP. When you talk about COP, that is COP. But over the years, there's been this business buffer that's been built around it and this huge hype that has dwarfed the actual negotiations in terms of media attraction. So looking at COP itself... It's flawed. Of course, it's flawed. And I think this year was, it really attracted a lot of criticism, not least because, for one example, the decision making process is very um, clunky and inherently flawed in itself. So, for a decision to be passed, it has to be passed unilaterally. There needs to be 100% consensus. And this is because at the beginning, when all the parties signed up to the UNFCCC, they didn't actually agree on a decision-making procedure. So an example would be a decision-making by majority vote. So that wasn't agreed on. So it has to be made by consensus, which means the stakes are extremely high and it's a zero-sum game. So unless every party agrees, there's no agreement. And that's the worst possible scenario for a COP, especially as as we're approaching the midpoint of this critical decade, the date by which emissions are meant to peak. By that, I mean 2025. If there is no decision made and agreement reached between the parties, it gets postponed to the next meeting. And we don't have that time. So yes, there are lots of flaws with COP. But at the same time, there is no viable alternative. 
it's the best that we have. Charlie, what do you think? Because you've you know you're there with that crucial voice. I mean, Sarah's been representing the voice of those those states on the front line, but you're there with the voice of young people. What do you think? Do you think it's a, a process that we could rethink? I think this conversation has been probably a long time coming. As Sarah said, this problem has been getting worse over consecutive COPs, and it's really come to the forefront in Dubai because we've seen this difference in numbers between the number of negotiators, the people there really, as Sarah says, you know, doing the work of COP versus the number of people there who are speaking on panels, maybe meeting like-minded people from business or from around the world, etc. but with nothing actually to do with the negotiations. And um, I think when you talk to people on the ground at COP, there's this real awareness of the fact that this massive attention is not necessarily a bad thing because when you have the world's eye looking at what's happening at COP, it does put pressure on getting an agreement which moves the needle and moves things forward. And that's definitely not a bad thing. I mean, when we say that COP stands for Conference of the Parties, there's lots of COPs that go on because the UN has lots of different conventions and conferences of the parties. But I wonder how many other COPs anyone else thinks of or, or can name, really. like It does have something meaningful and it does contribute to progress, which is a good thing. But I think there definitely does need to be um, an awareness of when all of that attention starts to impact on the negotiations themselves. Because, you know, as I'm sure Sarah will know, going into COP, it's, you know, you could be queuing for an hour or longer. And then when you need to get a coffee or, or food, you're, you're queuing again. And I mean, I will say, it, I think it was well managed in Dubai, but any way that you're impeding on the actual negotiators getting in and doing their work is I think you have to step back and think what's going on here you know yeah I'm really hoping they have a fast track in for the negotiation and their own coffee store because if they had to queue with everybody else then then nothing would ever get decided they definitely queue for their coffee with everyone else but there is a special door for the ministers they get to fast track (laughs) so (laughs) the negotiators should probably get that too but I think it's funny because I think most people don't realize that the negotiating party or delegation can very often be only maybe three or four people that a country might send. Like I know, I, I believe Lebanon was four people this year or last year. And you've got about 100,000 people in the blue zone. Do you think that as a young lawyer, is this a, a useful process to have gone through? Is this something you would recommend that your colleagues put themselves up for? Is, it, is the legal element of COP a valuable experience for you? I think going there with my legal hat on as well, I mean, NRF did have some people on the ground there. I think the whole process is fascinating, really, always from a purely point of interest or academic interest, because really it is very, very legal when you have groups of people coming together to form an agreement. I mean, it closely mirrors what we do in our day-to-day work of bringing parties together to form a contract and, and the give and take that goes into that. And when you magnify that out to have 197 parties... It's fascinating that any agreement can be reached at all, really. So um, that's always interesting. As someone who's interested in the COP and the climate crisis and how we go about solving it, it's interesting to peek behind the curtain about how that COP text comes about, because I think very often the headlines are whatever was in the COP agreement or whatever the result was. But really seeing the negotiations and the process that goes into that, I think gives you fresh perspective on that text in the sense that it is definitely very, very important, but it makes you realise that it's also really the lowest common denominator in terms of what countries can accept in terms of their climate agreement. You know, if you are interested in COP, I think it's a fascinating process. It's fascinating to be there. But I'd say when you do go, make sure that you are going in a way that you are contributing or, or trying to help the process 
as well. I don't think you ever want to be superfluous to needs or you ever want to be a weight on on the movement of the, the negotiations. And I think the vast majority of people are there genuinely trying to help move the negotiations along. But, you know, as we've said, I think this COP made us realize that maybe we need to balance those numbers slightly. Yeah, we might have been slightly too many businesses. But Sarah, you not only were you there in your volunteer role, you know, you were also speaking in a panel, weren't you? So you were really bringing together that role of the volunteer, but also your young professional experience and what you do as a lawyer. Yeah, I was definitely there wearing at least two hats. So there with LRI, but also with with Clyde & Co. And also there as a, a young lawyer, just in my own capacity. So I had the privilege of speaking on behalf of LRI on an event that was actually looking at the role of lawyers in the climate crisis and the role of lawyers at COP. Because as Charlie mentioned, it's extremely relevant. And we do have a very important skill set that could add value to the COPs. It's also where a lot of businesses make very big announcements and it's where sectors make huge commitments. So this year, for example, we saw the oil and gas decarbonisation charter was announced and that wasn't something that came out of the negotiations themselves. That was announced in the buffer zone. So it's an opportunity as well for lawyers. That's not to say that law firms should just start sending armies of lawyers who won't necessarily add value. And I think there's other ways that law firms can I hate to use the word, but capitalize on the COP conference without being there in the flesh and ways that they can help make COP more understandable for people who aren't there. So I don't think adding to the 90,000 people uh, is necessarily the right way. But it is really, I think, important that all lawyers know what goes on at COP and the implications for them, their practice and their clients. If I can just jump in there as well with uh, an interesting point, because I think that's true. I remember at COP26 as well, thinking that there was a great presence from the law firms. But one thing that I found quite interesting this year was that I got talking to a couple uh, lawyers who are good friends of the CYMP um, initiative that I was there with. So one, for example, is Maya Groth, who leads the Climate Governance Commission, which is all about bringing partnerships together to solve policy gaps. And another is uh, David Boyd, who's the Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment. Again, really, really interesting um, man, and he's doing great work. But funny enough, I was talking to both of them, and they're both ex-corporate lawyers now doing things that are very not corporate. But um, there are, you know, also some ex-corporate lawyers there in disguise doing other things and other roles now. And I think that's probably quite interesting. It was interesting for me as a young corporate lawyer, and I, I hope it'd be interesting for other people listening in who can sometimes think of our careers being quite um, linear perhaps but really the skills that you're developing at the kind of law firms that we're at are so applicable in lots of other different ways to help uh, solve the climate crisis or help contribute to the COP process or, or climate issues more generally and I think that was a, an interesting perspective I got as well. So there's a route out if you need to escape from corporate law the middle or end of your career there's something else you can do. We've been talking about you know the whole experience for you I'm wondering about how we then put in part replicate but also make this really relevant to other young lawyers. Do you think that we need to capture a little bit more of that radical spirit that so often happens at COP when you've got groups of of young people who are really informed and really passionate and that youth movement. I mean, do you think we need more young people to be more radical about the climate? Because it is a, you know, Sarah, you said we're halfway through this, this critical decade. We don't show any signs of managing to get our emissions down to the level that we need to. We do need to take more action. Do we need more radical action from young people like you? I mean, it's a bit late for people like me because we're getting, you know, towards the end of our careers. But what about you guys? Absolutely. 
and I'm going to counter there, you, Amanda, and I don't think it's too late for anyone to get involved. And to be clear, I'm not calling for everyone to, to join the streets. I don't think my firm would be very happy if I took that view and made that my position on this podcast. But my point is more that people need to be more radical, but not everyone needs to be more radical. So there's a concept in politics called the Overton window, and it's kind of a window of public acceptability. So anything within the window, so one on the far side, there's really hardcore activists like Just Stop Oil. And then on the other side, you know, there's business as usual. And the more radical certain people are, it shifts the window of acceptability to make more moderate climate action seem a bit more acceptable. And you can look, for example, at Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. So until a few years ago, Extinction Rebellion was seen by many, I imagine, as quite crazy radicals. But now Just Stop Oil has come on the scene and they've staged much more, um, let's keep using the word radical, protests. That shift the dial and it's made Extinction Rebellion seem more normalized. So my point here is that there's a spectrum and there's a spectrum of action that people can get involved with. And we need people on the one side pushing the dial And then we also need people at all stages up to that point, taking small actions every day, doing what they can to create change within their immediate sphere. And that's a really important um, part of the movement. Charlie, what about you? Are you going to take to the streets anytime soon? I was just reflecting on um, Sarah's answer. I think that's so interesting. I think completely aligns with what I think as well. What I was really going to highlight was that, you know, young people aren't a monolith. We all have different views and, and different priorities really within within the context of the climate crisis and especially working as I was a cop with young people from really all different regions of the world you kind of get an idea for the different um, circumstances that people are in the different you know because the climate crisis affects every part of our lives some people were there really you know focusing on air pollution how they can improve that for others it was health or, or climate tech as Sarah was saying everyone has a different role to play and I suppose it's about recognizing that as well. And for some people that will be a more radical element and for others, probably more like Sarah and myself, who's not going to be on the street. It's probably more facilitating people making that transition. But it does take all of us. It does. And it's very lazy journalism to suggest that young people are all the same and talk about youth as if it were one you know, single movement. So you're absolutely right to, to pick me up on that. And you know, what I take from this conversation is a great sense of encouragement that something as perhaps small C conservative as a big corporate law firm can accommodate the types of interests that you have and not only accommodate them, but actively support you to do more, to engage in this incredibly important conversation. And, you know, there's obviously a need to spread that, to spread both your learning, but, you know, the opportunities for people entering their careers to be engaged in this conversation as well. So so it's encouraging, I think, that corporate law is, is taking this stance and it's encouraging that you're being allowed to flourish in the way that you are. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful to you for giving up the time and sharing your experiences. Before we close, is there something you'd, and we've talked about whether people need to be more radical. Do you have a call to action or is there something you'd like to put out as a call to your colleagues, but particularly perhaps to, to younger colleagues entering the profession? What do you think they could actively do to make their voices heard or to contribute to helping solve this climate crisis that we find ourselves in? I think for me, I always go to really trying to inform yourself as much as possible about the climate crisis, it will affect every part of our lives. And really, it already is. And for us as lawyers, it means it will affect every part of our clients' businesses as well. And it's going to affect every one of our clients. So, you know, you can't ignore this issue. You have to engage with it. And I think 
it's a pretty good place to start to just trying to learn as much as you can, read as much as you can, build up that knowledge. And um, you'll find that quite naturally you end up having more of these sorts of conversations where you're moving the needle a bit, even if it's in terms of your firm's policies or even if it's connecting with other young people who share that interest. And you you know quite naturally slide into learning about the climate crisis to wanting to take action, wanting to do something in whatever role you have. So that, that would be my, my advice. Put it in the centre of your business. Don't make it a peripheral um, element. It's got to be, yeah, right in the heart of what you do. And what about you, Sarah? Yeah, I, I just wanted to feed into something Charlie said. So last year, the Law Society of England and Wales published guidance on climate change, which basically set out all the different ways that they could could imagine where climate change would impact law firms as an organization, their practice, but also their clients, and also how to integrate climate change considerations into the mainstream advice that lawyers of all disciplines give to their clients. So Charlie's absolutely hit the nail on the head there. You, you will be getting ahead and you'll be giving yourself, a, let's say, competitive edge as a lawyer if you get ahead of these curves and you know this subject matter before you're obliged by the regulator to do so. And then the second point I want to build on Charlie's point about upskilling and educating yourself is that I encourage you and I implore you to start having difficult conversations with your seniors. I know that sounds like a really scary thing, particularly as a paralegal or a trainee. But if you have taken the time to educate yourself, you know, you've attended the webinars, you've gone to the conferences, you've read the books, you've listened to the podcasts, you've done all that work, you've got the knowledge and the ideas you will be teaching your your seniors in the law firm things that they don't necessarily know because maybe those materials weren't available when they were training. I imagine it wasn't as uh, an important issue when they were learning. They will hopefully appreciate you taking the time to upskill them. And you might find yourself very quickly becoming seen as an expert within your firm, even though you're extremely junior. That's something that we've seen at Clyde & Co. You know, we, we have a trainee-led climate change group you know, you really get the chance to excel in the firm and to build your brand as a climate change lawyer. And I think that's extremely valuable. I'd quite like to plug very quickly, it's Legal Voices for the Future. It's an educative initiative. I'm actually vice chair of it. And it's a way that young lawyers can learn about the climate crisis in a very informal setting. We have monthly knowledge sessions where we focus on a topic. There's a quick presentation, an interview with someone working in that field, and then there's a creative content session it's completely independent, free to join. And it's just a very, we think, a very useful resource for young lawyers wanting to upskill. Thank you. That's really helpful. And, and great to see you taking up that challenge of, you know, raising difficult topics, because it is hard in something as structured as a law firm where you've got much older colleagues with much more experience to be able to challenge. But I mean, if we can't challenge about the climate, what can we challenge about? Well, great to talk to you both. Thank you to my guests, Sarah and Charlie. And thank you for listening, everyone. Do make sure to listen out for more episodes. Uh, you can subscribe or you can find them by visiting the website of the Legal Sustainability Alliance, which is LegalSustainabilityAlliance.com. And my thanks go to Beth, my producer, and to Ed at T12 for podcast production and to you for listening. So until next time, goodbye. <laughs>